Thank you for that fine introduction, Mr. Ward. My name is Wardy Ward, and I'm one of your tour guides on this important episode of What's Up With Ward, the self-help podcast. Feel free to check us out on YouTube or What's Up With Ward TV as well for chances to win prize money and more information. We come from the good hood where we give it and give it good, but I want to send a shout out to my co-host before we get started, Ms. Tiki's in the building. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Ward. How are you? Well, my psychiatrist said I shouldn't share that information with people, but we're going to keep it moving. Oh. As you All know, right. <laughs> my, our motto on this show is everybody have a story to tell, but we just want to know yours. Our in-studio guest today certainly fits this criteria. This distinguished gentleman is going to share banking information and much more today, and he's going to help people find out about financial freedoms and dwellings that they may not have. Possible. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me and welcome Mr. Bill Johnson to the show. How are you doing, sir? Here's Bill. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I think I was having some internet problems again. Let me know if you guys get a delay and I'll try and correct that. All right. So um, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, Mr. Now, your specific role at Horizon Bank, what you do there and how you benefit the community, we just start from there. Sure, sure. Um, my name is Bill Johnson, of course. I've been with Horizon Bank um, a little over two years, almost three years. I've uh, been in banking and mortgage uh, combined for about the last 35 years. So I've done a little bit of uh, everything from um, banking center managers, business banker, loan officers. I've kind of done it all. I currently, uh, this is an area of the bank that I have partnered with in every position that I've been in, uh, we call it the CRA area. That is the Community Reinvestment Act area. Um, and I will note that, uh, to my knowledge, all financial, federal financial institutions do have a community reinvestment platform. Um, but I am at the risk of sounding bias, um, uh, particularly proud of Horizon Bank's uh, CRA initiative. Uh, my title or role is that of a community lender. Um, and I wish I could bullet point uh, for you my job description. I am learning that it entails a lot and it's fun, it's rewarding. Um, I basically engage uh, with the community um, at large, um, primarily working with a lot of uh, what we call CDCs. I like to define that it is community development corporations. It's affectionately referred to as CDCs. Um, a lot of social service organizations. Uh, Every organization you could probably think of that also have an initiative of giving back or to the communities that they are in or um, addressing the needs of, of what we consider our underserved communities. Mm-hmm. So how did you get started in your role at Horizon Bank? Well, I came to Horizon Bank, obviously, from uh, um, a previous uh, banking experience, and I came in um, as a banker. And, uh, and, and this is an interesting story and I love to share it because I was not necessarily looking for this role. It, it, it basically found me. Um, I was speaking with my now boss um, about an opportunity that uh, uh, was out there and I just shared with her that, you know, I'm, I'm completely content and happy with what I was doing, but if the opportunity uh, should ever come up in the future, um, I may want to talk about that. And uh, long story short, that conversation happened then, and here I am. <laughs> and uh, that was a few months ago. 
and so I've uh, got my feet underneath me, um, having uh, really enjoying it because the rewarding part of it is that's a passion that you, you have to have. It's not something that they can teach you. It's not something that anyone can teach you. Um, and a lot of the communities that I am serving, um, I came from those communities in my own upbringing. So I, I, I think that's where some compassion comes from. Uh, I'm now able to give back to those communities that I grew up in, uh, right here in Indianapolis. Okay, wonderful. Let me ask this. Let's just start at the beginning. Say from a basic level, someone comes into the, the bank and they maybe a candidate for this program. What do you tell them? What how who do you who fits the criteria? Just just walk us through like from the basic level on forward, please. Sure, sure. And uh, I want a preference that I, I do serve uh, the Indianapolis market. Uh, Lafayette, Indiana, as well as Kokomo, Indiana. I have counterparts in Michigan City um, and, and other places up at the bank's uh, footprint. Um, what I can tell you what I do as a community lender in working, having worked on the bank side of things, uh, and now I'm on our CRA side of things. And what I will suggest in most banks, and this is why I was excited to come on the show to share this, because the same demographic that I'm referring to uh, typically hesitate uh, to go into a bank because they, they don't feel like they're bankable. Um, you know, they may have bruised credit, they may have no credit, they may just their, their financial dynamics, they may feel like a bank is not there for them. Um, but the branches that I have and, and what we do a really good job of here at Horizon is educating our branches. That's the benefit, I think, of, of being a smaller community bank. Um, we, our platform is real. It, it's not there just to say we have the platform. We actually, um, we actually uh, have grassroots efforts is what I like to call it. So we have positions like mine, community lenders. So to your point, I like the branches to be familiar. They have enough to wrap their head around, uh, but I like them to be familiar with when clients come in, they have conversation. Obviously, if they're not fitting into those traditional uh, banking solutions, that the branches are savvy enough and the bankers are savvy enough to think CRA, community reinvestment. We have a different set of solutions uh, on our side specifically for those people that feel like they're um, not bankable um, and that there's no programs for them. Uh, we have mortgage programs, uh, a couple in particular, and I can elaborate on those, but we have a couple of mortgage programs, you know, our home pride loan and our home ready loans. Um, these uh, clients would likely never get approved for uh, conventional mortgages, so to speak, uh, just surely by credit score. Uh, because that is the way mortgages are done now. I mean, the days that I can remember for as long as I've been in mortgage where underwriting would actually look at the credit profile, make decisions based on a, a story that it's telling you. These days, um, it's, it's all credit score. Um, and so we actually have programs that, that reaches out to that niche that the credit scores are below what that conventional mortgage uh, qualification is. 
Um, and again, I can elaborate on those mortgages uh, because I, I, I really want to, and if you don't mind, I'd actually like to put them out more in detail um, when I talk about uh, our home pride loan. Uh, for example, we will finance up to the Can you hear me? No, so it's getting up 95%? We will finance up to 99% oh, wow. uh, of that okay. property. And this is the beauty of it. And when I talk credit score, um, we're looking for a minimum of 560. And, uh, and uh, even with that 99% financing, there's no private mortgage insurance. We'll provide up to $7,500 of down payment assistance. Um, and so the whole point of it all is to reach out to that demographic because they deserve also uh, affordable home ownership. And so that's uh, one of them, and that's our home pride. Home ready uh, is kind of neat with respect to, there's a caveat there that will also allow parents to be co-borrowers on, let's say their, their millennial child, for example, those are the ones that are out there looking for homes now, you know, um, to, to co-borrow, their parents can go on there to be a co-borrower to help them um, with, you know, they can use the, the parents' income uh, as a co-signer, basically, but they're a co-borrower. Um, and so it, uh, that, that both of them, now the 620 is what we look for there as far as the minimum score. But if you think about it, a lot of young folk or some young folk uh, that are in the, the process of building credit, they may be hovering right around that 600, 620, 650. Um, but these two programs here are designed specifically for that low to moderate income um, and for, you know, the home ready for the, uh, the younger folks who needs a little assistance, maybe with a co-signer, they may be single, they may not have a spouse, uh, but mom and dad could actually go on there with them uh, to assist them with that purchase. Um, so they're, I'm very proud of them. I, I, I like to put it out there. I know it's not common knowledge. Old banks do not offer this. This is um, Horizon Bank's portfolio mortgages on their Community Reinvestment Act side, specifically targeting the low to moderate income areas. Um, and uh, again, it's not common knowledge, which is one of the reasons I appreciate being on the podcast. Mm -hmm. I like people to know these things. And as I'm out in the communities working with CDCs, um, you know, different uh, community organizations. These are some of the things that I tell. Now, having said that, I will say, everybody, if, you, if, if, if we can't qualify you on these two programs, the other part of my job is to get you ready to purchase in the near future. Because my thought is, if people don't know where they stand, uh, from a financial perspective, from a qualify a mortgage qualification perspective, if there's nobody there to now be able to look at their credit, look at their complete financial picture, and coach them in the right direction, you know, sometimes it can take 12 months, sometimes it can take 18 months. But if it's an objective that they have and they're not ready at any given time, it is my job to get them ready for that. Now, some of the audits is going to be on them as well. But it's better to get factual information and have a very clear path than to continue listening to opinions uh, that will probably never get you where you want to be. So uh, that is another piece of the CRA side. You know, I do a lot of uh, financial health. 
um, and sometimes I, I have to do that for clients um, and even as I look to do their mortgages. Um, it gives me a very clear picture now because I have some very factual information. So if they're not ready at any given point, now we're on a, a path to get them ready for affordable foreclosure. Okay, so that brings up something very interesting. You said that this was that you offer programs that are just specific to Horizon Bank. This is not that although the CRA program, all banks are required by federal law to have this uh, in in place. Correct? They have correct. to have this right. So, but your bank, you say I, I was looking trying to do a little bit of research on this because I think the average person, which is why you're doing the show, has absolutely no clue what CRA is. So this is good. But I, it was interesting because it said it was an it was an act that was a stab, it was enacted in 1977 and basically it was um, established to prevent redlining, I think with a with community. So I thought that that's pretty. Um, it gets that's, really that's praiseworthy. Yeah. So yeah. But I, I also found too, and maybe you can ask me too because I was I was confused, but I think this clears it up because. Um, I was trying to look up how you apply for something like this, but it's it's not an actual loan. But what your bank does, you're saying, is help ones to um, achieve those loans because through that CRA incentive, that's that's an incentive for uh, you to help ones to gain loans through the bank. Correct. These two uh, mortgages that I'm referring to, these are actual mortgage loans and they are conventional loans. Mm. We call them portfolio is because we now can create the parameters in a real effort to try to assist these clients. When I say portfolio, that means we don't sell them. Typically when mortgage companies do loans, sometimes they'll service, sometimes they'll sell. And when they put these programs together with very specific underwriting guidelines, typically there's an investor that they, could be, they can patch them up and sell some to. Um, these are not something that an investor would probably uh, want to purchase uh, for no other reason that they don't have an appetite for credit score or other underwriting criteria of, of, of the mortgage. So these two programs here, these are actually mortgage loans that we do here at Verizon Bank. Now we do couple, and, and I would be remiss if I did not mention, uh, the Home Pride, I'm sorry, the Home Ready, uh, that up to $7,500 of down payment assistance, that is our program. Um, we do also partner with other down payment assistance agencies uh, to provide um, uh, to provide uh, down payment assistance as well. For example, the Federal Home Loan Bank, uh, they like to identify themselves as the bank for banks. Uh, they have that same initiative, CRA initiative, um, of giving back to the community and, being, and having grants, grant opportunity um, for the low to moderate income. Um, and so uh, one of the other caveats that I do want to mention with both of these programs, and, and this is not something that a client really needs to know, it's more, uh, you know, once the process starts, uh, it's good information for their realtor because they're going to be showing them properties. The properties need to be in what we call a low to moderate income census tract. Uh, that is uh, the caveat there. Uh, and again, that is something that's determined in the process. We figure that out. Uh, even before the process begins so that everyone is on the same page. The first start is that pre-qualification. Uh, you don't need to know all of that for the pre-qualification. 
Um, and so um, obviously I will uh, disclose my information to the show. Anyone um, can reach out to me directly um, for anything specific or, or answer any questions specific to their individual situations because everybody's situations are different. Uh, but the, the caveats to these are not something that's as relevant as having the conversation and getting a process. So, I was I was very shocked by what you said the low to moderate income range was. What did you say the maximum was for a person to qualify for this kind of help? The maximum income? That, that is a very good question. Um, and I'm going to be very honest with you to have, have that information in front of me. But what I will tell you is it also depends on the number of people in the household, what that income can be. Ah, okay. um, when I say low to moderate income, I by no means want to suggest that they have to be below a poverty level. Uh, because that low to moderate income uh, basically is relevant to the median income in the area in which you live. Uh, so that income can be 50,000, it can be 60,000, it can be 70,000, it, you know, it, it can be, uh, there's no income limitations as far as what you can make, depending on how many people are in the household. So it opens, it's a wide range uh, that could qualify uh, most people. Um, so. I, I, I don't want to to to, to uh, have anyone assume that you have to be low income because it's low to moderate income that we're looking at. Uh, so that's what creates the, the range there. And again, that is something that we actually determine in the process as well. Now, you had mentioned that credit score being as low as 560, mm -hmm. and that can get you 99% financing. So if your score was a little higher, say 680, would that equate to 100% financing? That's a great question, because if you are a 680, obviously I could um, do the mortgage, but if you're a 680, uh, that really would have us look at your uh, traditional mortgage products, because if you're a 680 or higher, um, these two programs, um, could we qualify you on them? likely and i would actually say yes because that credit score is what really is going to matter along with debt to income and some other things but if you're at a 680 or higher we would be looking at you on uh, a different mortgage program uh, that would better suit you okay yeah okay so these here uh these two programs the home pride and home ready they're really targeting the lower credit scores that would not typically qualify for your traditional mortgages if you had a 680 or above. Um, so we're pulling, we're bringing them into the fold. It's you know six five sixty to let's say six twenty, right around in that area. We're bringing you into the fold of being mm -hmm. able to also uh, become homeowners. I see. I have two two questions that immediately came up. Number one. You had mentioned that there was, you guys can remove the PMI. I've never heard of that since I've been trying to get houses. How do you do that? And two, why would you take a risk? I know banks take calculated risks all the time, but, but why that population? And just, is that really safe? Um, it, it is. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preference, um, I've, I've been in mortgage for a long time also. And I will tell you, I have never been a big fan of PMI. Um, because, you know, your home is the collateral. And private mortgage insurance is there to basically, should the loan go south or the mortgage go south, to take care of the mortgage company um, and they deal with the fallout. 
and just move the, the mortgage company out of the way. Um, but you have a home for collateral. Uh, that is something that we can do. It is not necessarily a risk for us to eliminate the private mortgage insurance um, because mortgages are insured by the bank in, in different ways also. So there's other ways to do that where that cost doesn't have to be uh, passed off to the customer. And that is one of the attractive things about this. When people hear up to 99% financing and no private mortgage insurance, it's pretty standard that anything above 80% loan to value, you're going to have private mortgage insurance. And that's one of the, the awesome pieces about this because that private mortgage insurance is an expense also. And if it's passed off to the client, let's look at that low to moderate income demographic that we're talking about. We're trying to help them not, uh, and, and one of the ways is, is to reduce costs, and PMI is a cost that uh, uh, we can absorb. That makes sense. So, so the second part of my question was to take that risk of this demographic. I'm just, you know, as as a person who tried to invest, I would be kind of apprehensive. So, why that? Why target them if they are low to moderate already? Does that mean that you know their credit risk is a little, you know, shaky there? Not necessarily, and and I and I, I think that is a misconception. And again, for as long as I've been in mortgage, I, I love sharing my perspective on that because it's a real one. Because individuals may be in a low to moderate income demographic, because individuals may have um, a lower credit score than your 700 or 800 than everybody looks to, does not necessarily mean that they are a risk. Um, a preference. Uh, my, my earlier years in mortgage, if you remember me saying, where underwriters would actually look at a credit bureau and it tells a story, people's credit scores can be low for a number of reasons, not necessarily because they don't pay their debt. Uh, they could have a lot of debt. Uh, they could have maxed out debt. Uh, so there's a lot of variables and they could be paying that debt on time, on target every month. So they're doing what they need to do. But if they've got a lot of debt, particularly a lot of maxed out debt, uh, there's there's several things that could be going on in the financial picture that puts a stranglehold on that credit score. And so there is a misconception that because people, will, some people will have lower credit scores, that they're a bad risk, that they don't pay their bills, et cetera, et cetera. That is far from the truth. Um, and so I remember the days when I would look at a low credit score and I want to look at the credit and let it tell me a story. And then I could ask clients the questions and they will confirm that what I'm looking at. That's the way I used to look at credit. And I still do look at credit that way. Uh, unfortunately, I guess for some people, I am not an underwriter and, and I don't make that decision. But at least because I have the ability to read a credit bureau and it tells me a story, that allows me now in the example that the customers are not necessarily ready for whatever reason, I'm looking at the store, the financial story, and I can help course correct things to get them ready for that home ownership. You brought something up that was interesting too that I realized I learned so much in our conversation again. You said there's some kind of formula that actually we can even use ourselves to determine how much we can afford uh, when we're looking to purchase a home or anything. So you take that into consideration too. Use that same formula when you're determining how much you can loan an individual. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, debt to income, um, affectionately known as 
DTI, it's debt to income. That is a major qualifier. Um, and the reason debt to income is a major qualifier, um, it kind of addresses the, the predatory lending aspect of things. So if the debt to income, if, if you didn't consider that, you could be overextending people beyond what the numbers say they can afford. And so um, when I look at debt to income, I make it a very simple equation. I take the monthly income that they're making. Um, I add up all of the minimum monthly payments that they are uh, paying on, on all of the trade lines or all of their debt. Um, and I take after I add up that all of the minimum income or minimum payments, I um, uh, divide that. Uh, let, me, let me back up. You take their total monthly income, you divide all of their minimum monthly payments, and that number into that, that number is going to come out to a percentage. Most mortgage underwriting guidelines are looking for that 45 or below percent debt to income. I think anything over that, now that could be different when you're buying cars. You know, I guess it's because it's less risky. There are some auto dealerships that I take up 50, 55% debt to income. But when it comes to mortgages, that is a huge, um, that is a huge uh, dollar amount. That is a huge expense. And so you really don't want to overextend people beyond their affordability when it comes to purchasing homes. Okay. So is it fair to say it'd be, I think apartments are like three times your monthly income to get an apartment out, if I believe that's correct. Is that similar with getting a mortgage? Say if I make $80,000 a year, and if those numbers you mentioned, would I be able to get a $250,000 house roughly if everything else checks out? Well, and when you're when you're qualifying, and that touches the debt to income, because when you're qualifying for a mortgage, it's, to me, it's not so much how much you make, it's how much debt you have. Uh, oh. Because we're looking at debt to income. So I never take a look, or I don't think it's, it's real to take a look and say, okay, I make this much money, how much house can I afford? Because you haven't factored in your debt. So, you know, you can make $200,000 a year, but if you've got a whole lot of debt to factor in, you still could possibly not debt to income. So the debt is more relevant than your income when it comes to qualifying. Would that include student loans? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, that's one of the things that we're um, uh, kind of coaching to now, uh, particularly since student loans have been a deferment for almost the last three years. Um, but people are still trying to do mortgages right now. And so since the student loans have been deferred the last few years, they've kind of not considered that because we're not paying anything. It is still relevant to us though. Um, and so what I've been having people do is even though they're in deferment, go ahead and get on an income-based payment plan so we can use that payment. It's typically going to be lower than the 1% that we would have to factor uh, if you were not on an income-based payment plan. Ooh, mm, that's almost unfair. So you say other banks don't necessarily include that or you, that's just what you guys do as a safety net for yourselves? Just well, if we have to, because, you know, when you consider student loans, if you look at anybody's student loans or their credit bureau, it's like every semester that they're doing these loans, by the time they're done, you look at their credit bureau and it looks like they've got 30 loans. Um, and so we have to look at them individually and anticipate what a monthly payment would be. 
So we just suffice it to take that total amount, uh, use 1% of that, and it may be overestimating. But again, we're trying to factor their debt to income. So we want to make sure that we're safe in there. And yes, that, that 1% may be providing some cushion there. And if they can qualify with that, uh, for example, my daughter did. She, she had qualified when she built her house um, on the 1%, even though she was on an income-based payment plan. Because they were deferred, uh, the mortgage company that she was going through, uh, for whatever reason and their underwriting purposes, they preferred to use the 1%. Now, if she didn't qualify, that would have been a problem for me. I would have had to help her discuss that, but she happened to qualify. So I think that 1% is what most mortgage companies will use as a standard, just on the side of caution and not overextending people. So it's more looking out for that client, whether they get approved or not, uh, than to to be too flexible with that. That 1% is pretty standard. It really is as easy for them to make a phone call, uh, get on an income-based payment plan. That's something they can provide to us. It's typically a lot smaller payment. And when you have a tight debt-to-income ratio, the smaller the payment, the better. The bigger the payment kind of throws things out of whack. So it's, it's just easier to do that. Um, and and it, it is something that you have to do every year when you get on those income-based payment plans. Some people think you do it one time and that's just what the payment is, you know, forever. Uh, but no, they want to see if their income is increased every year to see if they can get more mm-hmm. payment every year. <laughs> 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 you're paying off a big amount. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> an income-based payment plan is something you have to apply for every year. Now, now, once you get the mortgage, it's not a factor for us. That's just more information for anyone with student loans that are on an income-based payment plan to have the knowledge that, no, it's it's not a one-time thing and that's what goes on. That's more information for that student out there, for that former student. That is something you have to do every year. It's not a one-time thing. Mm. Okay, so I have a question as regards mortgage loans. So uh, this is for somebody who has absolutely almost no knowledge in this area. But as far as uh, if I were going to buy a house, um, what would make me want to choose this program? Or or does this work along with these other this program instead of a traditional FHA, VA loan? um, These things also um, they allow for lower down payments too, right? And, and credit, lower credit stores like the Fannie, Fannie Mac, Freddie Mae. So Mac, how do these, yeah, okay. So I said, yeah, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. <laughs> see, see, I told you, I yes. told you, didn't I? So, <laughs> so why would I go this, this route as opposed to those? Towards <laughs> point, you know, when he was suggesting, you know, the credit score piece. So if you approach any mortgage company in any bank and you want to apply for a mortgage, that is what they're going to do because they don't know what that profile looks like until after they take an application for credit, uh, which basically is where the programming starts once we understand what your credit is. So these two mortgages here are not mortgages that someone would come in and say you know i want to apply for a home pride or a home ready um, unless they already know what their credit score is and they know that they're not going to qualify for your traditional mortgage but what happens is they're going to go through the, the traditional mortgage application process um, application full credit and again that's where the programming starts so if they're not qualifying for your FHA, your VA, what have you, 
um, and it's based on that credit score, then our mortgage side uh, knows that these are referrals for our CRA area because yes, we do have programs for those. Uh, because I tell my all of the branches in, in my uh, in my market always refer any mortgage uh, request to your loan officers, your mortgage loan officers, we call them MLOs, uh, because, uh, not to confuse the traffic, that loan officer knows rather they have programs for this or not. Uh, now, banks that do not have these programs, unfortunately, their process is obviously just turn the application down. Uh, we give a second look. Uh, because we actually have solutions on the CRA side that can help those individuals that have those credit scores lower than what is necessary for their traditional conventional mortgages. Why does it take so long for a loan to go through? Isn't it like several weeks? Uh, the underwriting typically, whether it's a first mortgage or whether it's what we call HELOCs, home equity lines of credits, underwriters uh, typically like to um, identify with at least 30 days in processing. Um, but there's variables in there that um, are out of the control um, of the mortgage company. For example, appraisals. You know, once an appraisal yeah. is over, you know, that appraiser's got to contact you, that appraiser's got to do that. Uh, once they do that appraisal, they they mandate or stipulate that you know they got so much, so many business days to get it back to you, um, and so you know there's title work that needs to be ordered, which is typically a quick process. So it's all of the logistics around that mortgage application to bring it to a closing or a final underwriting point so that it's able to close. 30 days is very reasonable. Um, and I would even venture to say in some cases, 45 days could be very reasonable because of all of the other third parties that are working on things to bring that to the final underwriting point. see. And once the 30 days are up and you have everything, all the paperwork signed, you move into the house, when is your first payment due? Is there a grace period? That actually depends on when the day of the month that you close uh, is going to determine when that first payment is due. There is that feeling out there that uh, um, there's a month in between before you start having to make the payment, but there's no real scientific madness to that. It literally depends on the day of the month that you close when that first payment is going to be due. Okay. So like, for example, when you refinance a property, it's that, and it's not just a feeling, it is. When you refinance a property, it's almost like you have a free month <laughs> before your first payment is due. Uh, but again, it's all relevant. Even in that instance, it's really all relevant to when the, the day of the month that you close because it typically rotates on a 30-day cycle. Um, so if you close at the end of the month and you haven't, and you know, you closed in time to where you didn't have to make that payment for that month. There's where that feeling is that you uh, you have a free month because you didn't make the payment this month because you're closing this month and then the payment is not due for another 30 days. So it, again, it's relevant to the day of the month that you close what that is. Okay, that makes sense as well. Okay, Bill, my question about appraisals, you mentioned that. My daughter, she was going through the process and uh, she's getting a condo, but they told her that she had to get a different one because the HOA was too high for whatever reason. So we, she's kind of going back and forth with that, but she may be calling you. But I want to know, 
is an appraisal really necessary? Because I kind of did a walkthrough with the guy doing the appraisal and I think I knew more than he did and I didn't know too much. So <laughs> what does an appraiser do and do we have to have it? Yes. So the short answer is yes, but more specifically that appraisal is, you know, when we talk loan to value, um, that value piece is why that appraisal is necessary. Uh, because that appraisal is looking at uh, the property, whether it's a stick-built home, whether it's a condo, it's looking at that property, subject property, and it is placing a value on it. Not so much just looking at that property and placing the value, but it's a lot of all of the information with respect to that subject now they're looking at com at least three comparable sales in the area uh, that have sold in the last 12 months at least. What did they sell for? Because those comparables, what we call comparables, those comparables are basically dictating that value. That's how that value is determined. Everybody thinks their home is worth more than it is sometimes but it's all relevant to those comparable sales over the last 12 months that's really setting the tone. And a good example to that is what is happening right now. Um, you know, I refinanced my home a few years ago um, and um, what I would have thought my value was, it came in significantly more. And then I gotta tell you, I was happy about that at the same time. I'm a little scared about that because, and of course, given wow. that, I was very careful with my loan to value because I didn't want my, you know, once these housing prices really level out, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't want to to, to be uh, underwater, so to speak, uh, because here I have a loan on my home based on an inflated value because the property values um, uh, had has been inflated. They're leveling back out. Um, but... Um, I say all of that to say that that is why that appraisal is necessary because it's giving you the value of the home that's going to be relevant to the loan. You know what? I, I misspoke. I'm sorry I got the term wrong. I do see the value of having that. I meant the inspector. That's, that's do, the guy. Do we have to have the appraisers? No, do you have to have an inspector guy? I think that's the guy who comes by and check out the furnace or whatever and the light. Oh, home Man, That's probably what I meant. Home inspections, I'm with you. Yeah. And I will yeah. tell you, that is up to uh, the buyer. Um, now, some mortgage companies may require inspections. If, if, if a mortgage company requires the inspection, um, which typically in the purchase agreement is when that's decided, um, the underwriter sees that purchase agreement long before title work and appraisal are ordered. Um, and to be honest with you, I don't know why um, a mortgage company would necessarily require an inspection. That's usually an agreement between the buyer and the seller, and it's usually identified with in the uh, purchase agreement. Um, so some people will forfeit the inspections. You know, you get a visual, you seem to think everything's okay. You're, you, you don't really want one. Uh, but anytime a buyer um, requires uh, a property inspection, they're paying for it. The seller's not paying for it. The buyer's paying for it. And so in some cases, the buyer may feel like they don't want that expense. In other cases, the buyer may feel like, well, I've seen some things during my walkthrough that 
um, may cost me money down the line, whether it's the furnace, whether it's whatever it is, um, and they are wanting an inspection for some insurance or assurance that uh, in three to six to 12 months, they're not gonna be buying a furnace. Or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, in three to six to 12 months, they're not gonna have to replace the roof. Big ticket items. And so, and, and, and to be quite frank with you, when it comes to looking at a home, um, you can either take the word uh, of the seller or if they've got documentation they can show you to prove the roof is this many years old, the furnace is this many years old, here's the maintenance record on this, here's the maintenance record on that. Those are some of the things that could make a uh, buyer comfortable enough not to uh, require uh, an inspection. But if you start seeing red flags, it would be prudent. I know it's an expense, but it would be prudent to um, require an inspection to give you that, again, that assurance that you're not going to have big ticket items come out of your pocket uh, in a short period of time. You want to at least yeah, be able to enjoy the property for a little while before you start having to replace big ticket items. Yeah. I, I, I'm still fascinated by the whole CRA thing. I know I was Googling. I had to try to find some information about it. I did go on Horizon Bank website. I was clicking through the tabs and mortgage and everything. And I know this is potentially one way you're going to educate. The Horizon Bank is using to educate people about the program. Um, but I maybe in the future, do you see that that is being baked into the website where they can easily pers- see that that is something that's going to be available to them? They can dr- hit the drop down tab for mortgages. They'll see CRA. Um, a CRA act, what this is, this could, this is another option for you. If you don't qualify for the other lo- these other loans, is that something that your bank is thinking about doing maybe in the future? You know what, Atiki, I like that idea and I'm going to share it because I do know um, all of the loan officers, uh, do, I'm getting ready to do it myself, I hear um, we have a link uh, when, once uh, you, you pull up our, our page, uh, or we can send you an email, I guess I should say, and there's a link on our email where you can click on it and do your own application. I do like the idea of being able to specifically apply um, on the CRA side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm sure as I think through that, and I think it's a great idea, it's that client being aware that that is the solution for them because most people will think I'm going to apply for a mortgage and mortgage is a mortgage. Um, but to, to be aware of the caveats with the CRA mortgages, uh, that's still an education piece. But I like the idea because even if they went on there and applied for one of our CRA mortgages, uh, if it had, we're going to do the best program for them anyway. So they can apply for one. And actually, after we look at the profile, we may determine and have conversation with that client that this particular program is a better fit for you. Uh, which is mm-hmm. my point of why I tell all of the branches in my in my market, send every referral, you know, just for simplicity's sake, sake some referral, send all of the referrals for mortgages to your mortgage loan officer, because then we will work together to determine uh, where it best fits. If it fits on their side of the, of the fence, great. Uh, but if it doesn't, obviously they won't be able to do it. We are the option. We are the second look uh, uh, for that mm-hmm. loan officer. 
And that's how it, 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 the clients are funneled into these programs. But I do love the idea of being able to actually, mm. just like you would a, tr a, a traditional mortgage, uh, being able to apply directly for one of these as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing I was thinking about if I go to Ohio.gov, because I'm going to Ohio, of course. So Ohio.gov and I need some help with food assistance or a medical card or whatever. And then you see how easy it is to find help when you're in need of that kind of assistance. And I thought, well, that really, I, I'm, I was wondering like, okay, so it should be a little bit easier I think, to try to find that. But obviously you have the advantage that Horizon seems like they're trying to, they're taking the lead. Your bank may be in um, implementing a lot of programs that are, are really kind of um, making sure that they're gonna hit the marks or qualifications of that CRA Act. But what are some of the um, incentives for the bank to hit those markers or reach those markers for um, the CR, CRA qualifications, for lack of a better word. Right, it's a very good question, Tiki. The biggest thing is because all banks um, typically have a vision to grow, um, and that growth comes with um, acquisitions and mergers. And when banks are looking to acquire, um, that CRA rating is one of the things that is considered primarily because it gives that clear indication that if you're in the business of acquiring um, other banks, that means you're, you're, you're going into other markets. How well are you doing serving the markets that you currently have from a CRA perspective? And so um, it's, it's huge. Um, and so that is uh, one of the, I'm sure it, it affects uh, other uh, infrastructure matters uh, in, in the banks, but the big one is um, again because you you know banks acquire and merge. That I can tell you that CRA rating is 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 a primary focus in considering that, and to me for for very good reasons because if you're not uh, uh, actively serving the markets that you're in from that low to moderate income perspective. Um, why, why should you be allowed to, to, to go into other markets? You're not going to serve them either. Um, and so uh, that rating is, is very important, primarily for, for mergers and acquisitions. Mm. So is it a numerical thing? Like, a, what is the, the um, rating? What does it start at? Is like one to a hundred? And where does Horizon fall with that rating? I'm that's curious. That's a question, but I will be further honest with you and tell you that that piece there is above my pay grade. What I focus on, and I hope that uh, uh, all banks in their CRA efforts, um, I, I don't, I don't look for that customer service rating. Uh, our focus is really being sincere and active in our grassroots efforts to do the work. And uh, you know, it's, it was my philosophy when when I was on a bonus structure. Um, you know, some some folk tried to figure just that out. What numbers do I have to be at for these dollars? Uh, for as long as I've been in the business, and I've realized very early, I don't waste my time with that. I'm a, a firm believer, and I would always share with my staff: if you do a great job at what you do, the numbers will take care of itself. And, and I firmly and sincerely believe that. And, and especially if I if I look at it that way about my dollars, I need my dollars. But Absolutely. rather than focus on a number, I focus on my efforts. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, in harmony with your uh, question there, Tika, 
I looked up something called the OCC or the Office of the Controller of Currency. And it looks like they use a four-tiered rating system where I see it's outstanding, satisfactory, needs improvement, and substantial non-compliance. So I'm thinking that you have to find your CRA performance for each state, and then you can kind of go from there. Uh, Bill, would you know what your uh, rating is on there, on that uh, that four-tier? I don't know specifically, and, and again, okay. I'm sounding a little, a little, little arrogant. I'm going to assume we're way up there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, it's fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I wish you to research that for me, though, Ward. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't. I look in there. Uh, I also want to ask you about what's the difference between uh, a credit union and a traditional bank. Um, I'm trying to figure out what the what the competitive advantage would be, you know, for either. Because some people are like, hey, I'm a credit union guy, and other people are like, I go to Verizon. So, which one would I it's, benefit it's really, the most from? There's a couple distinctions that I'll I'll share. Um, because primarily it, it, it's it's all about preference. Uh, for example, I, I have a brother like that too. War he uh, retired from a hospital, certain institutions, hospitals, um, uh, foundries, different auto plants. Um, they are connected with, with credit unions. And so, um, you know, my brother's been with this credit union for 50 years, uh, and he's very proud of that. Um, but as far as banking in general is concerned, uh, and for every bank that I've ever worked for, I share this perspective. We all do the same things. Um, so, you know, we all have checking accounts, we all have loans, this and that, the other. What it boils down to, and this is what I've shared with my daughters as they we're looking to um, find a bank home. We, we all provide the same service, the same products. It boils down to service. Um, and um, you know, that's, that's why I focus very hard on my customer service skills um, because that is what matters to people. That's what I could appreciate. That's what made people refer. That's what made people remember. The only primary difference that I can share with you with respect to banks and credit unions, credit unions do uh, tend to be very competitive with rates. That's another reason that um, people can be attracted uh, to that. Um, not that it's just so much better or worse than, than a, a traditional bank. Um, their cost of funds uh, typically could be lower, which allows them to um, offer more competitive or lower interest rates. Um, but the insurance piece uh, is the bigger piece. Credit unions are not insured by the federal government. Credit unions do not have FDIC insurance like your federal banks do. They do have a type of insurance, but it is not uh, it is not uh, guaranteed by our federal government. Okay, and that, that federal insurance, that covers uh, 200,000, 250,000? The FDIC limit is $250,000, um, and, and that's something else that uh, I love having that conversation too, because um, there is still some mentality out there that thinks you cannot have more than $250,000 in the bank. Uh, that is not what uh, that is saying. Uh, it's $250,000 per account title, and that is very important because, and when I say per account title, just to give you a few examples of that, um, you can have an account on your own, just for individual. That account is insured up to $250,000. You can also have an account joint with your spouse. That's a joint account. 
the, the, the titling is different, but the joint account, that account is insured up to $250,000. You can have a joint account that's POA to, which is power of attorney or beneficiary of, of one of your kids. Uh, that account is $250,000. So there are several ways the account can be titled and each one of them are covered up to $250,000. And so people that have a lot of money in one bank, the bank is happy, I'm sure, but that bank should also be making sure that those account titlings, that accounts are titled to where they're all covered under FDIC. Uh, and at any point that they're not, they need to be looking at other options for those deposits. Understandable. Okay. And, and those other options can still be within the bank, just just in different areas of the bank, maybe. I understand. <laughs> okay. We do um, have investment side. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Well, um, again, uh, everybody has a story to tell. We just want to know yours. We're talking with Mr. Bill Johnson of Horizon Bank. We're based here in Indianapolis, Indiana today. But it's time to move into the second part of the show called Getting to Know You, a rapid fire questions. We're just going to ask a little more questions because we want to know a little bit more about you. You've given us so much knowledge on this banking thing. We want to find out more about the man, the myth, the legend. So uh, my first question is, uh, what are some of the other jobs you had in your career that kind of led up to this position? Wow. So, you know, there's a part of my life board that I, I, I don't even talk about anymore. Um, before I ever got into banking, I worked for uh, Shell Oil Company. Um, I used to um, manage several of their retail operations. Um, and then, of course, you know, not sure how much people are familiar. There's dealers out there, there's jobbers out there, but they all tag the name of Shell Marathon, what have you. Um, and uh, Shell went into a phase where um, I guess they thought it was more profitable to sell off to dealers and, and kind of get their monies that way. Um, and I used to have a friend that would tell me all the time, Bill, I think you would be really good in banking. Well, I was very happy with what I was doing. Um, obviously, when you uh, go into a downsizing, you tend to rethink things. <laughs> and so that's essentially what happened there. That was so many years ago. It was before my, um, uh, actually, it was my oldest daughter was just born in 1991 um, when I was um, needed a new career path. And so I took my friend neighbor's advice, went into banking. Um, in banking uh, for probably about four years, five years, and got an opportunity to um, go on the mortgage side of things. Uh, I was a mortgage broker for about 12, 13 years, um, and uh, then got an opportunity to go on the lending side of things, uh, working for a mortgage company. Um, and then, of course, 2008 happens. I think everybody knows the details of 2008, um, and that brought me back into banking. Um, and uh, so for as many years as, that I've been in banking, um, obviously there's just a few areas, everybody finds their fit. There's a, just a few areas of the bank that I uh, thought that I could enjoy. Um, and this side here on the CRA side, um, again, as a branch manager, as a banker, you know, I've, I've never really felt good, particularly uh, with lending. Of, of telling clients I could not do something and, and, and good luck to you because typically when people have a lending need, 
Um, there is not a plan B. Um, and so I've, I've always uh, focused on things that I could not do, uh, providing plan Bs to people. And so that is what made me get really familiar with um, uh, in every bank that I've ever worked for, their CRA side, because um, I was very familiar with, with CRA and, and I try to tout that within the branches because um, yes, uh, I think most employees know uh, what CEO you know, the bank has a CRA platform um, as far as how many of them know the details, the caveats, and really what we do uh, to the extent that we do it, uh, the knowledge may not be as extensive. So I like to share knowledge. Um, and so even the branches that I serve in my three uh, territories, uh, I, I make them as aware of, of what we do here and what we have to offer on the CRA side as uh, they are required to know on, on, on uh, the retail side. Um, and so, um, yeah, it, it's really just about helping people. Um, and like I said, when you talk about low to moderate income and underserved, uh, that was me, uh, a lot of my life. And so, um, you know, we can't let these bow ties fool us, fool people more. Uh, <laughs> we didn't always wear them. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I appreciate uh, and understand uh, that, that demographic that's out there. I understand their thought process as far as uh, maybe feeling by the wayside sometimes. And so I love getting out there and partnering with organizations that are out there to do the same thing that I am mm. and make it real. Uh, because though when I say grassroots efforts, those are the things that make me really proud about, uh, and given, given in mind, I've worked for several banks, but I've never worked for a bank that actually performs the grassroots efforts of their CRA activities like Horizon Bank does. And that is not being biased. I've had enough experience out there. It's just a fact. Mm -hmm. I know one of the one of questions I was wanting to ask you is, was this always your passion? But you kind of answered that. It, it really wasn't. But it's it's become your passion. That is very evident. Uh, what but what I realized, how, I realized, what I realized TV, is bubble over. <laughs> it's just that I've uh -huh. in a role that this is this is primarily what I do. Um, in the uh. previous roles, I did it out of um, compassion and wanting to help people. I, I think that was just inherent in me. But what I really love about it now is this is what I do now. And 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 that's why I can enjoy it more because I can give it a hundred percent, hundred and ten percent, as opposed to when it was necessary. Yeah. What degrees do you have to uh, what what degrees do you have and what degree do you need to have this kind of rule within a bank? We don't require educationally. Yeah, we don't require yeah. um and then mm. that so that can also be a misconception too i you know there's nothing that um i would say there's nothing we do this rocket science obviously depending on certain areas of the bank they probably do require a certain level of degree or experience like most people um but in my position yes i do have one and it wasn't um, a factor um, I've also graduated from a military academy. I'm a former military officer, uh, but that I don't think that was a factor either. These are just things that I've done <laughs> and they've been helpful to me in my career. Uh, but uh, I don't think, the funny part, my wife says the same thing. I don't think any of our education was ever required. It was just something that we had to do. <laughs> that was the thing to do. I agree. Uh, you said you're in the military. What are some of the places you've seen in the world? 
I know you've been outside of Indiana. I, I have, but I will tell you, I never had to uh, leave stateside uh, because I resigned my commission at that opportunity. So um, I was enlisted first. Uh, my intended career was the military, uh, military officer, and uh, went to IU, ROTC, did all of that, graduated OCS, which is Ultra Candidate School. Um, and as I was completing officer's basic, um, I was field artillery, so I was uh, stationed at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. And um, my wife and I had been married for about a year. She didn't go with me. She stayed here in Indy because um, uh, the officer basic was going to be about 18 months. So we, we did the long distance thing. Uh, but at conclusion, I called her real excited. Turkey, Korea, and Germany were my choices. And uh, of course, everybody does the Germany tour. Um, but um, again, out of compassion, they were needing second lieutenants at the time in Turkey. That is where I wanted to go. And so I asked her, uh, honey, Turkey, Korea, Germany, where, where would you like to live? And she said, neither. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, broke my heart. I thought, you know, this is not a great time to share this with me. I just went through a lot, but uh, long story short, um, what I did was I, I basically held on to my commission and, um, you know, I'm, I'm no, uh, I'm no Mother Teresa by any stretch, but I, I try to find good things to do uh, with what I know. Um, so I did a lot of the local recruiting for the National Guard uh, units around here. I was not a natural recruiter. I was just a military officer, so I had no boundaries. Um, I would go into local high schools and uh, talk to juniors and seniors, try to see what ideas they had with their lives. And, you know, you may or may not be surprised. Some of them have no idea. Um, and so I tried to share some ideas with them and give them some direction. Um, so I, I did quite a bit from a PR uh, perspective. And then at first lieutenant, I decided uh, this is not really what I had in mind for my military career. And so I resigned my commission, I believe, in 1992. Hmm. Okay. I have a question for you. So what lesson, what's one lesson that your job has taught you that you think everyone should learn in, at some point in their life? Um, you know, I, I'd like to say that's an easy one. And just as I answer this, yeah, I'm sure I could come up with some more. But one of the things that, and, and I'm not really sure if it's what my job has taught me as much as what life has taught me, and I've been able to incorporate it into my job and, and a lot of my life, just everything, um, is to listen. You know, with, with when you when you are working particularly in a financial institution and you are dealing with clients, you know, everybody is quick to or some people can be quick to wrap solutions around you without really having a thorough conversation. Um, and that that part actually concerns me a little bit because in my and what I've learned is that you really can't wrap solutions around anything until, or anyone until you've had a conversation about what's important to them, what it is they're trying to accomplish, um, and to take time to listen to that and ask follow-up questions, make sure you're on the same page, make sure you have an understanding, uh, ask clarifying questions. Um, that is what I just learned in general, but, but I will say primarily on the job, 
directly to your question because this is where I have to do more of that. Uh, you know, there was a time, I will say, that, you know, you, you get excited, you hear things in conversation, you're quick to wrap a solution around this and this and this and this. No, sit back and listen, have conversation with the client, really find out what it is they're trying to accomplish, what is important to them, who else is it important to within their circle, try to get as much of that dynamic as you can and then start and then those clarifying questions are important because sometimes we we don't hear what we think we heard <laughs> so asking clarifying questions is, is huge um and then start to to where i can actually say tiki this is what i heard and this is what i suggest so you you you, you really pass those um, solutions off coupled with what you heard and i think when you start approaching your conversations and your business conversations like that, I think it, it's just, there's no misunderstanding. You have a holistic approach. Some things may take place now, some things may take place later, but you have a plan. Um, and that's just the strategy that I, I use in dealing, whether it's a retail customer, whether it's a business customer, whether it's a CRA client, it, it doesn't really matter who the client is. Process. So I think that process of having conversation uh, and really getting an understanding um, um, of what is important to people, not what you think is important to people, um, is huge. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, that's important to listen, not just in business, but also in life relationships and in all areas of life. So that's I, I really like that. Yeah, no one likes one to be <laughs> Say it again. No one likes to be sold. I don't even no, like to be sold. No, no, no. You definitely don't like to be sold. I'll give you um, a lot of information now. Yeah. My last question before we close is uh, this one. Which do you think is a better movie? If you've seen one of these movies, let me know. Which one do you think is better? Love Jones or Cooley High? Don't remember either one of them really clearly, but I am okay. very pretty familiar with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. That was, that was a bonus one I threw out there. But uh, now, before we uh, close the show off, Mr. Johnson. Airport. You wouldn't say about <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, wait. I always throw that one in there with people. But, yeah. Don't feel before bad, we... Bill. I didn't see. I had to I had to catch up also. Don't feel bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, just want to say it's been a plum pleasing pleasure talking to you today but is there anything that you want to clarify or expound upon more before tiki gives her final thoughts here and also we want to know where your uh, people can find you at or your social media footprints for the horizon bank absolutely and um uh i, I think you really touched a lot of things the only thing that i would like to summarize uh obviously is Horizon Bank, uh, myself uh, more particularly, um, and, and my desire to, to, to help the community. And, and that is very sincere. I know it sounds kind of cliche-ish, but it's very sincere. Um, and I'd like to prove that uh, uh, by any contact that uh, if anyone wants to reach out again, talk about any particular situation they have, their own situation, um, everybody's is different. Um, I am available for that. Um, because that is not just my job, it is my passion. It is something that I enjoy doing. And if I could actually keep it in mind where I came from, I would actually like to help anyone uh, that has an aspiration to do better, to do more uh, in their financial world, 
Um, I am here to kind of walk them through that. Um, I have a team of people uh, that can assist me with that. I've got an entire bank that can assist us with that. So um, uh, I encourage uh, anyone that um, kind of listening to this today and, and, and thinking about our home pride and our home ready mortgages and saying, you know, I've, I've been to the mortgage companies. I keep getting denied for this reason, for that reason. Um, again, everybody don't have these solutions. We do here at Horizon Bank. Love to talk to you about it. Love to see where we can where we can fit you in one of these. And because everybody uh, that wants to uh, and making the efforts to should be able to um, to step into the, the market of uh, affordable homeowners. Okay. All right. That being said, we're going to go ahead and give our closing remarks. Uh, Tiki, if you wouldn't mind sharing your words of wisdom with us, please. Most certainly. So a wise man, once the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Mr. Benjamin Disraeli, said, as a general rule, the most successful man in life is the man who has the best information. So that quote gives a special meaning to the term financial responsibility. Whose responsibility is it to educate you about your financial options and to research reliability of information? Yours and yours only. So to help you do that, we can reach out to um, Mr. Bill Johnson. We'll leave your um, contact information for us, maybe in the drop down. We'll put that in the video. And for anybody who wants to know exactly what the CRA Act is, you can visit the same website I visit, the www.federalreserve.gov to have a good explanation of what that act entails. So thank you again. All right. Remember, everybody has a story to tell, but we just want to know yours. So until next time, thank you guys for listening to What's Up Ward, the podcast. Our esteemed guest, Mr. William Johnson, of course, Horizon Bank. Peace. Once again, you're listening to What's Up Ward, the podcast. For those of you who may not know, this is a podcast that focuses on love, life, relationships, and everything in between. Everyone has a story to tell. I just want to know, what's yours? With that being said, one of the weekly goals of this podcast is to help people like you learn from our guests and comprehend information from a different lens of perspective. To all the listeners out there, both old and new, salute. Now let's begin this episode. Over to you, Wardy Ward.